And you know that uh, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, <clears throat> we are on a journey that we have begun through the book of Hebrews. So if you'll find your place there with me in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we're going to begin reading in just a minute in verse number 10. Uh, you know this guy that wrote this is, boy, he is just a smart cookie. Uh, he knows Old Testament scripture like the back of his hand. Uh, he is very schooled in logic and rhetoric and more than a writer, he is a preacher. And we are going to see some of his brilliance and we're going to try to follow him. You know, it's kind of like a, a mule running after a thoroughbred here, but that's what we're going to do. So let's pick up in verse number 10 and see if we can kind of keep pace with this thoroughbred of a preacher who authored the book of Hebrews. So verse number 10, here's what he says. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which, which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who were through fear of death uh, who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Well, this guy normally has a goal in mind for just about everything he says. And he normally gets to that goal through a series of logical steps. Remember, this guy has been very well trained in the school of Alexandrian logic, which was a university that existed in this day down in Alexandria, Egypt. And you can see that form of logical rhetoric and argumentation coming through in just about every paragraph that he pins. Here it seems that as he's aiming at this particular subject, why was the incarnation necessary? And he walks us through that. He basically gives us three reasons here. And grammatically, you can really follow him as he does that. Look in verse number 10. He says, for it was fitting. Does anybody else have another translation for that word fitting, maybe in your version? Uh, it can be translated appropriate. Uh, it was the right thing. It was the logical necessity. Uh, that word brings all of that to the table. So verses 10 through 13, he's going to give us one reason. And then look in verse 14. He comes back and says, therefore. And then he follows that therefore up with several purpose statements. So we know he's going to give us another reason why Christ had to be made a man. 
in verses 14 through 16. And then look in verse number 17. He gives us that word again. Therefore, and then he follows that up again with another couple of of, of purpose statements. So verses 17 through 18 is going to be his final reason. Uh, You can tell he's a preacher rather than a writer, can't you? Because he has three points, doesn't he? I mean, he just does. and Everything just kind of falls that way for him. But now, last week we saw that, uh, that the key to ending up in the right place with the passage was following the verbs. In, in verses 5 through 9, there are several shifts in verb tense that are really uh, integral in trying to, to, to stay with this thoroughbred of a preacher. But now in verses 10 through 18, it's not the verbs that are that important in helping us come to the right conclusion, but it is the pronouns. If we don't follow the pronouns, and if we don't understand the antecedent for each pronoun, we're going to end up lost in some pretty high bushes. Because again, this guy wades off into deep water. So the first thing we want to do is, is identify these pronouns and follow them. So look with me in verse number 10 first. For it was fitting for him. So underline that first him. And then when we get down to verse number 11, for both he, underline that he. And it's imperative that we understand these the way he meant them to be understood. So the only two choices we have here is, you know, when you see the capital he and him in Scripture... Is referring to deity. Now, which person of the Trinity does the author have in mind when he uses those? We only have a couple of options, right? It's usually referring to God the Father or God the Son, and sometimes it's referring to God the Spirit, but here we can limit it to two. So in verse number 10, we can see that that him in verse number 10, for it was fitting for him, the antecedent there, which is the key to understanding this passage, is God the Father. You see, because it was God the Father who took the decisive action that verse number 10 describes. It was fitting for him. Now, here's where we get a little bit confused because he's used this same type of terminology and these descriptive terms that he uses of God the Father to apply to God the Son. And some people get off in the bushes because of that. But we must remember this. Here's the mystery of the Trinity. Three, yet one. What is true of God the Father is also true of God the Son. What is true of God the Son is also true of God the Spirit. Just the mystery of the Trinity. So don't let that stump you. But notice what he says. It was fitting for him, that is God the Father, and these next few descriptive clauses refer to God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, In bringing many sons to glory, listen, the Father in bringing many sons to glory, how was he going to do it? Look, he was going to do it this way, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Now, again, don't let him throw you with this curve. When he says to perfect the author of their salvation, who is he referring to there? He's referring to Christ, exactly right. But the word perfect, has no connotation at all of meaning that he was imperfect before. As a matter of fact, the word that used there kind of means to bring to full completion. So was Christ incomplete before the incarnation? No, he wasn't. 
But here's what this author is getting at. The incarnation was this. It wasn't a, a subtraction of deity when he stepped from heaven to earth, but it was an addition of humanity. So now he's 100% God and he's 100% man. And his argumentation is going to follow that line of thought throughout these verses. So here's what it is that he's going to talk about. And by the way, this is the first time that the word suffering is used in Hebrews. But it's begun to pop up a little bit more frequently now that he's kind of opened that can of worms. So here's what we want to look at today. We want to look at his pain and our gain. Because that's what he's talking about when he refers to the necessity of the incarnation. Now we've heard that expression all our life. No pain, no gain. Well, what is it that we gain because of his pain? And by the way, what we gain because of his pain, we could never gain no matter how much pain we endure as human beings. He did for us what we could not, cannot, never will be able to do for ourselves. So exactly what is it that we gain through his sufferings or what is it that we gain through his pain? And again, we're just going to take these three reasons that he gave for the logical necessity why the incarnation, why Christ became man, why it was fitting for God the Father to use that as the plan of salvation for mankind. So what is our gain through his pain? Well, number one, this author tells us, by his pain, we gain family. Family. In verses three, th uh, 10 through 13. Now, just take note of all of the familial terms that this author piles up here in these verses. He talks about uh, brethren in verse number 11. He talks about sons in verse number 10. He talks about brothers in verse number 12. He talks about the congregation. I and the children. Whom, so you see, he's got a family motif running through these verses. Would you agree with that? Just by virtue of the fact that he piles up these familial terms. So what is it that he's saying about the family that we gain because of his pain? Because let's just be honest. There is an all-out assault on the family unit today. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's like the powers of darkness are out to destroy the basic family unit. And it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or a non-believer. The devil won't seem to obliterate the family relationship. Now we could go into all the various ways that he's doing that, but just let it suffice that the family is under satanic attack. And the reason being is because the family was ordained by God and bears much of the image of God, so it really has nothing to do with you as it is that the devil hates anything that brings honor and glory to God. So the family is out to be destroyed. Make no mistake about it. So when we use these terms here today, we have to be very careful because so many people today have no concept of what a functional family feels like and looks like. You ever notice that? I mean, we use the word dysfunctional. And that's where most fa Hey, every family because of sin, to some degree or another, is dysfunctional. Would you agree? We just are because we're in it, huh? If we weren't part of it, it would be functional. It would be, 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 what's the opposite of dysfunctional? It would be functional. Yeah. It just depends on how dysfunctional your family is. But I've had people tell me, Listen, I can't relate to God as Father 
because my father was such a ding-dong. And he did such horrible things in our family until the word father to me doesn't bring the comfort as it, as it does to some people and the comfort which Jesus intended it to bring when he says, oh, we address him as Abba, Father, as Daddy. And that's because the devil, you see, has had such an onslaught and such a, 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 a target to destroy the family. So I think this writer preemptively knew that. So when he says that we gain family through the sufferings of Christ, he knows that he's got to begin to set, set boundaries and parameters and define what a biblically functioning family looks like, a family that we gain because of what he endured for us on Calvary's cross. Hey, listen, would you agree with me if Christ bought it, it ought to be a little bit better than anything else we can put together, huh? And that's where this family originates, through the pain that he endured on Calvary's cross. So notice how he begins to define this family that we gain. He says, number one, in verse number 11, we are family because we have the same father as Jesus. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? Look in verse number 11, what he says. For both he who sanctifies, now who is this he referring to? This is Jesus. You see, he's switching back and forth with these pronouns and we got to stay with him lest he throw us off, buck us off like a bronco here. So notice what he says. He who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, who's that? Us. Exactly right. So he's talking about Jesus and those who are sanctified. Look, look what he says. He says, uh, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. They're all from one. So what, what he's saying here is we have the same Father as Jesus. Now he's going to continue to, to define this family that we gain. Check out how he, how he does it. Based on that assumption, no, based on that foundation that we have the same father. Here's what he says. He says, number one, we are close family. Now look here. This ought to describe the church, guys. Because that's who he's talking about, huh? He says, this family... Not like the dysfunctional family maybe that some of us grew up in. This is a close family. And you know why he says we're close? Because look what he calls us. He calls us brothers. Do you know that is the closest of all possible sibling relationships? Brothers. He didn't say y'all are third cousins twice removed. Huh? But that's the way some folk treat the church. We can take it or leave it. He said, y'all are brothers. Y'all are close brothers. Now, can I just ask you a question? Let me get in your business for a little while. Are there people in your life that your yes is on the table with them? Here it is. Here's my yes. Here's my commitment that says, I'm sticking with you and I'm sticking to you no matter what comes. Pardon my French, come hell or high water, like Lot said to Abraham, we be brothers. Are you with me? There is nothing you can do to change that relationship. I'm your brother, you're my brother, and there's nothing you can do to shake me off your trail because we're together. And you see, that's how he describes the church. But friends, it seems to me today that we don't have that type of relationship among brothers in the church. 
I mean, we'll throw one another away for little of nothing. Seems we live in a disposable, throwaway world where relationships, especially those formed in Jesus Christ, mean absolutely nothing. Hey, here's what hurts me more than anything in ministry. What hurts me more than anything in ministry, the deepest cuts that I have ever got as a pastor is when people whom I have loved as brothers poured into their lives for the good of the kingdom and for their own good. When I do something or say something that they don't agree with, kick me to the curb and end up going to the church down the road. Son, that's not brotherhood. Brotherhood is we're going to stick together no matter what. Because I didn't choose. You ever notice this? You, hey, if you could choose your family, would you choose the one you have now? See what I'm saying? We don't choose our family. I, I didn't tell God where I wanted to be born and who I wanted my daddy to be and my brothers and sisters. He did all of that. And can I say this to you? It's true for the church of the living God as well. Watch me. I didn't choose you to be my brother. You didn't choose me to be your brother. By golly, God put us together. Are you with me? God put us together. And here's what Jesus said. What God joins together, let no man put asunder. By golly, we ought to be inseparable. We ought to stick with one another come hell or high water. And not be so willing to throw one another away simply because somebody got their feelings hurt. Huh? I mean, come on. He says we are close kin. That's a biblically functioning family. We're close, close kin. I can't imagine John Wilson getting mad at somebody in his immediate family and walking off and leaving them. You're not going to do that. But son, here's a family that God has put together. And God is still putting together in Bonifay, Florida. And he did it because his son bought and paid for us on Calvary's cross. And what we gain because of that is family. Very, very close family. Are y'all tracking with me? Hey man, I, I, wish we, I, wish, I wish the church reflected that type of relationship, familial relationship today. And let me tell you. Uh, it does in certain places. The United States of America is just not one of those places. But let me tell you, in places where my life is dependent upon my brother's life and his life is dependent upon mine, I'm talking about in places where it's against the rule of the land to name the name of Jesus Christ, in places where people are persecuted. Listen, brothers, stick together. There's none of this betrayal. There's none of this getting mule-lipped and running off to another congregation. People stick together because their life depends on one another. And that's why the church has always looked so much better in places where persecution is at its highest levels. But here in the United States, let's just get on, be honest. There ain't no pressure on us. Matter of fact, we got it too good. Here's my theory. Our brother quotient is already way too high. You know what I'm saying? It's almost as if, hey, I got enough brothers. I don't need one more. So if you're not going to act right, just get on out of my world. I don't know what's going on up here. I'm, I'm coming unraveled. 
But look here. If, if our brother quotient is already full, then we don't need no new brothers, right? But man, it's not like that in places where, where a brother is rare. It's not like that in places where you might be tortured for just naming the name of Christ. By golly, brothers stick together. Dane, here's one of the things that was so refreshing to this preacher's heart on the mission field for so many years. By golly, on the mission field, listen, it's believers against darkness. Are you following me? It's believers against darkness. And it doesn't matter what your denominational background is. If you're a believer, you might be Episcopalian, you might be Presbyterian, but if you're a believer and you're there as a missionary, by golly, we are brothers and it's us against them. And you don't have any of this fighting. Well, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? No, I'm a believer. Thank God I am too. Huh? Man, that's refreshing. Would to God that we'd get to that place in the United States of America. But son, we're not. We'll throw folk away simply because they don't agree with everything that we espouse theologically. And can I just say this? If you're looking for that place, you'll never find it. You'll never find it. No, 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 no. Not on this side of glory. You're right. Hey, Jerry told me this morning, he looked at my text. He said, you'll never get through. I said, oh, yeah, I am. I'm half sick, so I'm limping through it. I don't know, Jerry. I might have to repent. I may not. Here's the deal. You don't have to believe exactly like everybody else in this place believes in order to fit in at Grace Church. Listen, we're not trying to make a bunch of clones. We're trying to make a bunch of disciples who love Jesus enough to stick together for the glory of the one who's worthy of all glory. That's all we're trying to make. Huh? Listen, I don't, I'm not going to go after you because your theology don't line up with mine. Listen, my own theology don't line up with my own most of the time. Huh? I mean, come on. We're all in this process of growing if we're reading scripture, we all look through sometimes and say, my gosh, that's contrary to what I've always thought. Spirit of God, would you mold this into my life and get out whatever's false? That's the process that he's going to talk about, he who sanctifies. Huh? Hey, man, this family stuff is serious. It really is. And it breaks my heart that the people who ought to be demonstrating to a world that's full of, of familial dysfunction People of Bonifay, Florida ought to be running to Grace Church simply for the fact that those people down there love one another. Amen. Hey, didn't Jesus say that? He said, by this, by this, all the world will, you know, will know that you're my disciples, that you all believe exactly alike. Is that what he said? No, he said, by this the world will know that you are mine because you love one another. Huh? Man, I wish, I pray that what God's doing in grace would just so astound people and how we're portraying what a family, a functional, biblical family looks like. It would just attract people from everywhere. Now, if I'm going to have a snowball's chance getting through this text, I've got to pull myself away from here, you understand? I ain't wanting to leave this. But i got to pull away. Check out, number one, he says we're a close family. Y'all got that by now, huh? Hey, we're pretty close. <laughs> huh? 
So no more getting mule-lipped at one another, right? <laughs> no, wait a minute. We might get mule-lipped. That's right. We're going to deal with it. It ain't going to separate us. We ain't going to pick up baseball bats and go hitting one another over the head. Because we're brothers. We love each other through it, man. We love each other through it. Dear God, I'm going to make mistakes. Would you love me through them? You're going to make mistakes. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and love you through them. You're valuable to me. I hesitate to say this because every time I use somebody's example, it backfires on me. <laughs> you know, there are people who watch us all over the land. Hello, people all over the land who are watching us today. And I normally hear from them. I heard from three or four people today. I had no idea they listened to Grace Church. But I had a rash of people contact me about a month ago. And they say, Pastor, that was the most beautiful thing. We've never seen anything like that. I had people call me and say, I've been in church all my life. And I've never seen anything like that take place before. And it was the day when Colton Madden stood right here and said, Church, I did some things that I'm not proud of. And I did some things that didn't do the name of the Lord Jesus any good in our community and didn't do your name any good in the community. And through tears, he said, if I could take it back, I would. I'm sorry. And son, I want to tell you that just gripped the heart of people and they began to call me and say, what have y'all done? How did that take place? We've never seen that before. I said, I'll tell you how it happened. I said, yeah, he made some mistakes, but we love him. We be brothers and we ain't going to throw him to the dog simply because he made a mistake. Huh? My word, I'm telling you, my, my phone blew up that week with people saying, we've never seen anything like that. And I said, here was my one regret. When Colton did that, we didn't stop him before I had time to get back to the pulpit and say, now church, what is your response to what he just said? And I guarantee you this is what the church, what the response of grace would have been with one voice. Colton, we forgive you. It's all right. And folks came around him and hugged him and embraced him after. That is family. But so many times, folks just... Get close to the line and other family members want to kick them out of the family. Look, we're brothers. We're not the crazy uncle that shows up once a year at Thanksgiving. Huh? How many of you have a crazy uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving? Wait, wait a minute. Let me ask you. How many, are, how many of y'all are the crazy uncle that shows up? <laughs> All right, I got to run. Do I? Have I said that before? Listen, you want to come finish preaching this message? Because <laughs> I'm bogged down, girl. I'm bogged down on this one. If we had grace group this week, you know where we'd stay? All right, here we go. Number one, by his pain we gain family. Number one, that's close family. But number two, that's clean family. Look at this. Look at what he says. He says in verse number 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Let's translate it this way. He who holyfies and those who are becoming holy. Or let's just get down right to where we, we live. He who cleanses and those who are being cleaned are all one. Did you get that? 
You see, that's the part of, that's why you can't get rid of me simply because I say something boneheaded that hurts your feelings. Because I'm in the process of being cleaned. Have you ever noticed so many people think that you got to be perfectly clean before you come to Jesus? And you know the old proverb. You don't clean fish before you catch them. You catch them and clean them. So although we are close family, we are also family who are being clean. Follow me? Follow me? Hey, I've still got... You remember when you was a kid and you get out of the bathtub and your mom would say, let me look behind your ears. <laughs> and she'd say, son, there's still enough dirt back there to plant a row of potatoes. You ain't clean. Get back in that bathtub. You remember those days? Wasn't but about a week ago, huh? <laughs> Every one of us are being clean. Hey, thank God there aren't as many skeletons in my closet as there was when he found me. But there's still a few bones rattling around in my background. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. But praise God, we're in the process of being clean. And man, that's just so cool. Man, it just thrills my heart every time I see somebody in the family of grace. Take one giant step toward him. Ugh, you know what that means? That means you're getting clean. That means he's drawing you to himself. and You're taking more of his word into your heart and mind. And it's changing who you are. You're being transformed into the image of him rather than being conformed to the image of the world. And there's nothing more fulfilling than to see that take place in people's lives. Man, some of you are such an encouragement to me. Because there's some of you, when you came to Grace Church, I thought, oh my God. <laughs> and now look at you. Look at you, by golly, you're becoming leaders. Some of you are singing up here on Sunday morning. Some of you are playing on Sunday morning. Some of you are teaching Bible study. Some of you are leading grace groups. Dear God, when He cleans you up, He cleans you up, huh? I mean, he does. <laughs> so what kind of family are we? Hey, we gain a close family because of his suffering. Number two, we gain a clean family. Let me say it like this. Maybe a cleaner family, huh? Because we're not clean yet, but we are being cleaned. I like that. I like that. And number next, notice what else we are. What kind of family are we? The final thing he says about this family that we gain I know it's not the final thing, but in this section it is. We are a claimed family. Claimed family. Jerry, you got any kinfolk you don't claim? Oh, yeah. <laughs> is Jerry the only one, or does everybody have that person? You remember that, you remember that weird uncle I was telling you about? <laughs> yeah, he's got my last name, but look, that's the other side of the family. <laughs> they grew up on the other side of the tracks. Everybody has that person. Or two or ten. <laughs> that you don't want to claim. But notice this. I want you to see it. Look what he says in scripture. Verse number 11. He, who is that? Jesus. Jesus is not ashamed to call them. Somebody say it. Brothers. Whew. Son, that humbles me. You know why? Because there are times, it seems like he ought to say, I don't know who that is, but he never will. There's nothing you can do if you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb on Calvary's cross. There's nothing you can do 
that's going to cause him to be ashamed of you to the point that he will claim you as a brother. <laughs> My word. We are claimed family. No matter what we're going through, no matter where we are, no matter how we've blown it. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you're mine. You're my brother. I'm not turning my back on you. I'm not through with you yet. I'm still cleaning on you. And I'm going to claim you to the very end. My, my. Don't you want to get you some of, some of this kind of family? I mean, I do. That's what, yes, sir. That's what the church ought to be like, huh? So notice number next, he goes on and, 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 and describes this family that we gain through his pain more. Number one, he says we have the same father as Jesus. But number two, he says we have sweet fellowship with Jesus. My, my. Here's a family. And this picture is, here is a family unit with Jesus sitting Indian style on the floor and the family gathered around him and he's telling us stories. And we're sitting there with our mouths gaped open. You talk about family devotion. My goodness. We have sweet fellowship with Jesus in this family. Now look how it is he brings us out. And notice what he does here in verses 12 through 13. Here, this demonstrates this author's knowledge and versatility with the Old Testament. Because he goes back into the Old Testament. He pulls something from the Psalms. He pulls something from Isaiah that's rather remote, by the way. And he puts those words in the mouth of Jesus saying, this is what Jesus says about you. So check it out what he says. It, when we have fellowship with Jesus and he's sitting Indian style on the floor and we're gathered around him like little children with our, with our eyes riveted, glued to every word he says, this is what he does. Verse number 12, saying, you see that? He put these words into the mouth of Jesus. He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Now here's what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to God the Father, is the way he puts this in his mouth. I will proclaim your name, Father, to my brethren. So what is it that Jesus does when we have sweet fellowship with him? What do we talk about? Here's what he does. He explains the Father. Is there any other subject that you had rather hear spoken about than to hear Jesus explain the depths, the profundity, and the simplicity of God the Father? You see, here in this family devotion, when we have sweet fellowship with Jesus, guess who the preacher is? The preacher is none other than the Son of God. And He's explaining to us God the Father. Who was it that read Scripture this morning? Share. Share. The reason I chose that Scripture is because in John chapter 1, verse number 18, here's what it says. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God... Did you catch that? The only begotten God... And here's the Greek word. He exegetes Him. Y'all familiar with that word, exegete? That's what an expository preacher does every Sunday with the Word. He unpacks it and shows you the beauty of this passage. And the Bible says that's what Jesus does when we meet with Jesus in this family circle. Jesus exegetes God the Father. My goodness. So check out what else He does. 
He's sitting Indian style in the middle of a circle and we're gathered around him in this family. And not only does he exegete or explain the father, but he extols the father. Look at this. He says this. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Again, he's talking to God the Father about what he's going to do in this family circle. What what does Jesus do when he shows up in the family at church? He explains the Father and he extols the Father. Hey, get this, Jack. Where are you? Not only is he the preacher, but Jesus is the worship leader as well. Huh? He's leading us to praise God the Father. That's what happens when Jesus showed up. By the way, Here's how you know if you've met with Jesus when you come to church on Sunday. When you meet with the family, how do you know if Jesus was there? Because you leave knowing something about the Lord that maybe have never crossed your mind before. You saw something beautiful in God the Father that you've never considered or pondered. That's what Jesus does when he shows up at family meetings. What else does he do? He leads us to worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. So how do we know that we've met with Jesus rather than just having a social club meeting on Sunday morning? Son, we leave having been in his presence and worshipped him and understood more about his character and who he is. What else does he do? Well, check this out. As this guy puts this in the mouth of the Son of God, And again, I will put my trust in Him. This is Jesus saying, I will put my trust in God the Father. Again, behold, I and the children, that's us, whom God has given me. Have you ever thought about this? You know what you are, really? You are are little more, little less than a present that God the Father gave to God the Son. Isn't that what it says? I and the children whom you have given me. Wow. Wow. You are a present from God the Father to God the Son. Now, here's what I notice about presents. You know what the value of a present is to me? It really has little to do with the gift itself. Who's have to do with it, Alyssa? The person that gave it to me. Son, if the person that gave it to me is family, if we be brothers, you know what I'm saying? If we're tight, you don't have to give me a whole lot for me to value it. I mean, I've got stuff around the house that really has little value financially. But son, it has a lot of value sentimentally because of somebody who gave it to me. Now stop and think about that. God gave you, God the Father gave you to God the Son. You see, not only does Jesus love you, but He values you even more because He knows that God the Father gave you to Him. I don't know of a cooler picture in all the Bible than that in a way of looking at yourself. Now notice, what does He do here? What does all this mean? Look what Jesus said. Jesus is modeling something for us. I will put my trust in Him. Jesus is modeling for us faith. I mean, Psalm 22. Jesus quoted on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet I will put my trust in Him. That's the context from which all of this comes. Here's what He's doing. He's modeling something and He expects us to follow. 
That's what he's doing. So what does Jesus do when he shows up at church? He exegetes the Father. He extols the Father. He puts his trust in the Father and he expects the children whom God has given him to do what? To follow him. That's exactly right. If Jesus does it, he expects you to do it. If I do it, I expect you to do it is what he's saying here. So he has expectations of us, does he not? He really does. And listen, those expectations are pretty high. They just are. I mean, you've seen the circumstances in which Jesus trusted in God the Father. My word. Jerry, we're going to finish this thing. Here you go. Notice there's three reasons here. I got to. No, wait a minute. I'm forgetting one of the last reasons or descriptions of the family. Here it is. Descriptions of the family. We have the same father as Jesus. We have sweet fellowship with Jesus. And finally, under that section, we have a secure future with Jesus. <laughs> yeah, come on, somebody. Look, look at verse number 10. Look what he said. For it was fitting for whom all things are and through, through whom all things are in bringing many sons halfway home and then losing them. Where's he bringing us? Now, y'all tell me, what is he talking about? Where's glory? There you go. Hey, it's Jesus. This out in front leading us from this earthly existence to our heavenly home one day, huh? That's the picture. Jesus, the new Moses. By the way, he's going to talk about Moses next week. He's making a connection already. Jesus, the new Moses, leading God's people out of captivity into the promised land. Leading, bringing many sons to glory. Now can I ask you, has Jesus ever set out on any journey to which he did not arrive? He never has. It's amazing to me, there in the Gospels. That little band of disciples was with him on the shore of Lake Galilee. Jesus said, get in the boat because we go into the other side. So there was a storm brewing. Huh? Peter was a fisherman. He could read the weather. He could look at the, the wind and the waves and say, this ain't a day to be sailing. It was one of them red sky in the morning things, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he said, no, wait a minute. Jesus said, get in for we're going to the other side. That was a hint right there for Peter, huh? He didn't say we're going to go halfway and a storm's going to come up and sink us. By golly, if Jesus gets in a boat and says we're going somewhere, guess what? We're going. Now here's what he did. He came from heaven to earth at the Father's will to bring many sons to glory. There's no way if you're one of his sons, if you're one of his children, if you're one of his brethren, there's no possibility of existence that you ain't going to get there. None. And notice it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. Remember what he said? He said, Father, of those you've given me, I've kept most of them. Huh? What did he say, Jerry? And, and he said, I have lost how many of them? None. There were no disciples bobbing in Lake Galilee with a life raft around their neck, were there? <laughs> One of the emergency beacons flashing. Fell off the boat of Jesus. I don't think so. Here we go. I don't know if I'm going to finish or not, Jerry. 
By golly, y'all got to quit preaching me so hard. Don't you know I'm sick? My, last thing my wife told me when I left her in bed this morning, she said, now don't you get all worked up today. <laughs> I said, I won't, baby. I'm going to stand there and I'm just going to be monotone. I'm just going to preach in a very soft voice. Ten-minute devotion, I'll be home, all right? <laughs> yeah, she believed it. <laughs> You're right. All right, by his pain, we gain family. Number two, by his pain, we gain freedom. Hey, if the Son shall make you free. And y'all been reading the Bible or something, hadn't you? Huh? Here we go. Notice what he says in verses 14 through 15. Therefore, here's another one of those reasons. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he also, you see what he's saying, he also had to partake in the same. That through death, he had to become incarnate that by dying he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the first thing he did by becoming, or one of the things that he did by becoming man and dying on the cross was this. He disarmed the devil. <laughs> he, took the, he, he took his weapon right out of his hand. Now the old boy, look, he, he might have his hand in his pocket and it might look like he's pointing a gun at you, but it ain't at his finger. <laughs> I promise you, he's only got his finger pointed at you. It ain't a gun because Jesus has disarmed old Scratch. Now, he might can bluff you. You might think he's got something, but he doesn't because Jesus took it away from him. He rendered him powerless. Now, watch me. If I'm sitting at my house in Troy, Alabama, God forbid, and the door bursts open and a fella comes in, with a with a with a uh, with an AR-15, and says, "Give me all your money." You know what I'm gonna do? You better believe it. <laughs> but if my crazy uncle walks in with his finger like this and says, "Give me all your money," you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna slap him in the head and say, "Get out of my house." <laughs> Why? Because he don't have no arm. <laughs> he don't have a weapon big enough to make me do that. And you see, that's what Jesus did to the devil. So watch this. All, this. all this old Flip Wilson theology that says the devil made me do it, how'd he make you do it? <laughs> I got a friend who's a police officer and he's a state policeman in Brazil. He was out having supper one night with his wife and a guy came into the restaurant where he was sitting to rob the place. Lo and behold, he went into policeman mode and he went to grab his Glock 45 and guess what? The only thing in his pocket was a cell phone. So you know what he did? He grabbed his cell phone and he walked right up to that guy at the cash register and he put the antenna, that's when they had antennas. He put the antenna of that, that cell phone right in the back of that guy's head and he said, police, don't move. You know what the guy did? He didn't move. He dropped everything. I said, my God, you mean you caught that guy? He had a gun and you caught him with a cell phone? He said, yep. I said, I said, how'd that go? He said, all I can tell you is I was praying the whole time. Dear God, don't let my phone ring right now. <laughs> how foolish do you think that guy felt when backup arrived and he turned around and he saw that guy holding him up with a cell phone? That's how foolish we're going to feel one day. Because the devil ain't got nothing. All he's got is a finger pointed at you. And he can't shoot a finger. 
Check out number next. Not only did he disarm the devil, but he also delivered the captives. Amen and amen. You see, because this is what the devil had. He, he had us through fear of death. Through fear of death. I mean, ain't that why we, we're so hesitant to do anything that, 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 that requires a little bit of faith? We're afraid somehow it's going to injure us, harm us, yea, verily kill us. You see, that's the power of the devil that Jesus has taken out of his hand. And it's almost as if he had us in jail and now Jesus come in, took his gun away from him and opened the door and said, get out of here and let's get on to glory. Got to hurry. We getting there. Why is it that Jesus had to become man? What are the reasons for the incarnation? Well, by his pain we gain a family. Number two, by his pain we gain freedom. But number three, in verses 17 through 18, by his pain we gain forgiveness. Forgiveness. And get this. Here's what so many people don't get. So many people think when they get saved, God has forgiven them up to that moment in their life. Whatever they do on this side of getting saved, they're responsible for. Now, friend, that don't even make dumb, dumb, good dumb sense. <laughs> because from the perspective of the cross, when he died, where were all of your sins? They were in the future, son. That's right. Every one of them. When he, when he forgave you, he forgave you for everything that you have done, everything that you are doing, and everything that you will do. Now, look here. That don't give me license to say, whoopee. Let me go be as bad as I can. Heck no, it humbles me and says, Dear God, what a price he paid for me. I'm going to do everything I can to follow him and putting my trust in the Lord and avoiding sin because the devil has no power over me anymore. Check it out. By his pain, we gain forgiveness. Verse number 17, he protects us from condemnation. Look what he says. It says, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the... You know what that word propitiation means? It means to satisfy the wrath of God that was burning against you. He paid it. Now God's wrath, there's no more condemnation in Christ Jesus because He paid the price for your sins and mine. And you see, here's what God doesn't do. God isn't an unjust judge that puts us in danger of double indemnity. You know what double indemnity is? You're protected against it by the Constitution of the United States of America. It means that you can't be charged for the same crime twice. And if Jesus paid for it, you don't have to pay for it. And that's what so many folk don't get. If Jesus paid for it, if what he did was applied to your account, then you don't have to pay for it. That's the only way we get to glory. No such thing as double indemnity. I got to hurry. I got so much stuff I could do here, but I got to hurry to keep my word to Jerry. He protects us, number one, from condemnation. And number two, he prevents us from falling to temptation. <laughs> look at it. Look, look at it with me. Man, I, look, well, boy, we could exegete verse 17 about him being a merciful and a faithful high priest. But let's just jump to 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered... He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So how does he prevent us from falling? Because he experienced himself the hurt of temptation. 
Hey, who do you think experiences the full force of temptation? Him who the minute temptation presents itself, he falls to it? Or him who resists it even to the point of death on a cross? He experienced the full hurt and the full force of temptation. And because of that, he is now a sympathetic high priest. That's what merciful means. He knows what you're going through because he experienced it. He knows where you are. He knows it's difficult. But at the same time, notice, he's a sympathetic high priest. But he underlined this in your, in, your, in, in your copy of God's Word. Do you see those words in verse number 18? He is able. Underline it. He is able. Look, that, those three words can be unqualified when talking about the Lord. Can they not? Uh, whatever it is that, that, that he wants to do, whatever it is you need in your life, get this, he is able. Now here it's qualified. What is he able to do? He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Look, you don't have to fall. You don't have to stay locked up in jail because the devil don't have any more, any more bullets. He don't even have a gun to put bullets in. You don't have to fall to temptation because Jesus is able to come to your aid. And the picture here is, is an army being pinned down and calling for help. And here comes the cavalry riding in to help them and set them free. And that's what Jesus does. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me every time my weak, pathetic self falls to temptation... It's for one reason and one reason only. You know what it was? Because I didn't call him to come help me. Huh? Because what's that scripture say? That scripture says he's able to come. <laughs> He'll get there. He's able to come and help those who are being tempted. So here's my goal for this week. Let it be your goal as well. When the devil comes to you with his hand inside of his shirt and says do this, all you got to do is say, I'm not doing it because you're disarmed. You got your finger under your shirt, you idiot. <laughs> but number two, I don't have to do it because, hey, Jesus, come handle him. I promise you, he won't stick around very long. He'll hit the road. What do we gain because of his pain? My goodness. We gain more than this 10-minute devotion will let me express. But here's the deal. Everything that he gained, he intended for you to experience and possess. In Jesus' name, don't let the devil buffalo you and you stay locked up in jail away from everything that he wants you to enjoy at his expense. He picked up the tab and he wants you to enjoy it. In Jesus' name, let's follow him all the way to glory. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank